Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. When people talk about stress, it's like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? But if you're already in that really depleted state, any kind of stressor might be too much for your body because your body can't mount that healthy stress response of releasing some of that cortisol. Hey friends, welcome back to the show. Today I am joined with Isabella Wentz. She's an internationally acclaimed thyroid specialist, licensed pharmacist who has dedicated her career to addressing the root causes of autoimmune thyroid disease. After being diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis herself in 2009, she's the author of three books on Hashimoto's thyroiditis, uh, Hashimoto's Thyroiditis Lifestyle, Hashimoto's Food Pharmacology, and the Hashimoto's Protocol, which became a number one New York Times bestseller. And she joins me today to talk about her new book, The Adrenal Transformation Protocol. And as you might infer, there is a close relationship between adrenal dysfunction and dysregulation and thyroid function. So today we talked about the where adrenal dysfunction and dysregulation comes from, what are some of the clinically salient signs, the hormones that are involved in the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis dysfunction. So we talk about pregnenolone, we talk about the glutico, uh, glucocorticoids like cortisol, we talk about DHEA, aldosterone, we talk about the sex hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterones, and then we talk about the different categories of stress and how we might remedy them. So we talk about supplementation, we talk about lifestyle, we talk about protein intake, we talk about fatigue, we talk about perimenopause, all of the things. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. There's so much overlap in terms of signs and symptoms of being in perimenopause and sort of the conglomerate of thyroid and adrenal dysfunction. This is going to be useful for you. It's going to be useful for your girlfriends, for your mother, uh, and anyone that you love. So share far and wide. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Isabella Wentz. I am a huge fan of the BioOptimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a 
a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family. And over this winter, we have been using Elementi's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk. And my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apreski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. And for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. All right, Dr. Isabella Wentz, I am thrilled to welcome you to the Better Podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Stephanie. It's so exciting to be here with you. Oh, that's wonderful. And I wanted to jump right in uh, very early on in uh, your latest book, The Adrenal Transformation uh, Protocol. You you have this sentence, uh, maybe in the first or second chapter, it goes something like this, you know, what doesn't kill you doesn't make you stronger. It's what it doesn't kill you, stays in your body and overwhelms your stress response, <laughs> so, <laughs> which I thought was so clever. Uh, and so I wanted to start there and maybe we can start off with what poor adrenal function uh, and adrenal dysregulation, where that comes from. So the origins of it, and then maybe we can meander our way into what a clinical presentation or symptoms might look like. <clears throat> sure. So uh, when we think about stress and what it does to our bodies, right, and how our body perceives that, we can think about acute stress. So we're being chased by a bear or we're in a really life-threatening situation, and then our body responds in a way that our stress hormones are released and we really prioritize like running as fast as we can away from that bear, away from that threat. Um, we get into this fight or flight mode, right? Um, and then in, you know, in circumstances where it's an acute stressor, we kind of shake it off and then we can go on with our lives and go back to having, you know, really good amounts of energy, having great sleep at night and being in more in a balance between our sympathetic and our parasympathetic systems where our body is doing the repair that it's supposed to do. Our body is resting when it needs to rest and our body has lots of energy when it's supposed to have energy, Right that all stays in balance. But when we get into this like chronic stress pattern where our body is constantly perceiving a stressor, our, we 
shift into this adaptive state that's known as adrenal fatigue, adrenal dysfunction, where our body just doesn't produce the right amounts of stress hormones at the right time. Um, and this goes on for very long periods of time. A person will end up with, rather than building up their body and having a good balance of the sympathetic and parasympathetic, they kind of get stuck in that fight or flight state and their body is in a breakdown mode. Their body is in this catabolic mode and they end up having chronic illness and they end up feeling exhausted. They have unrefreshing sleep. They feel anxious, irritable. Um, and it just is, you know, you could see that they're not thriving. They are showing up in the world, not in a way that they're meant to show up with, with good energy and uh, great brain function and feeling fit and fabulous all the time. And how long would you say that it takes for the adrenals to sort of check out? Um, or at least for us to be in more of that, what you're describing in, in terms of that sympathetic dominant state. So for the listener, obviously we have lots of clinicians that listen who already know what you're talking about, but for someone who's never heard those terms before, sympathetic, the sympathetic nervous system, this is not an emotion. It's not like we're being sympathetic and understanding it's, it, we're talking about a nervous system, as you mentioned, fight, flight, fawn, freeze, uh, where we, uh, as you said, the proverbial tiger, the proverbial bear, where we will throw, let's say glucose to the periphery, right? We get, we throw our substrate to the periphery to run away to to flight or to fight, you know, the impending, uh, stimulus, the impending stressor. And then we have the parasympathetic, which is just the opposite to that, which is, you know, rest, digest, stay and play, right? This is our reproductive system. This is our immune system. This is where digestion happens, sleep, all the things that you had mentioned. So when we're thinking about adrenal dysfunction, um, Certainly that is one organ in that is involved in many axes, but probably the most famous, and you talk about this in your book, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. How long does it take before that axis, let's say that pathway, or for someone to start saying like, man, I, I think I'm really burnt. Is that, is it usually like one salient event? You know, we talk, I often talk about this in terms of pregnancy can be a stressor. It's like a great thing, right? We, we have children, but then there's a physical stressor of getting pregnant. There's the chemical stressor of, you know, the, just by way of being pregnant and <sighs> delivery and recovery and breastfeeding. And then there's of course the emotional, um, we'll say burden <laughs> of sleep deprivation and sleep deprivation of always worrying yeah. about our kids from that moment forward. So how long is it? Is it like one event? Is it, do we have to be very careful as women, let's say after pregnancy or multi, like if we have multi-parous women, is it something we want to be thinking about in that population or can it be just stuff that's we accumulate along the way over the course of our lives where you know, it's just, we don't, we don't metabolize it. We don't get rid of it. And it just kind of rots, we'll say in the body. <laughs> I mean, it could really be any of the above. So for some people, it's a history of childhood trauma that sets off their, um, their system where they're always in that reactive state. For some people, this could be many, many years of being really stressed out and pushing themselves for some people, it could be just within a few days of sleep deprivation, right? So sleep deprivation is one of the fastest ways to get into that state of um, the HPA axis dysfunction. And if we this goes on for a prolonged time period, 
then the person is going to get stuck in that. And sometimes if somebody, if the cause is sleep deprivation, we know that's the pretty straightforward cause, right? And then you go back to sleeping and you can sleep it off, then you can go back into balance. It gets a little bit tricky because I found that most people have usually like a few different things going on. So they might have a combination of that sleep deprivation, right? Um, then they might also have a history of trauma, something that happened in their childhood that just sort of makes their system a bit more reactive and responsive and overactive perhaps in some in some ways. And then we also might have things like chronic infections that are causing inflammation in the body. People might have food sensitivities. They might have you know, current stressors that are going on in their lives. And a lot of times it takes looking at what is going on in the body and what messages is the body getting? What, how is the body perceiving the world? Is the body perceiving the world as a stressful place, as a place we need to um, really work hard to survive? Or is the body perceiving the world in a positive way? Like is like we're we're in a good environment where we can we could rest, digest, we could reproduce, right? And typically what I see is it takes a little effort to shift all of these things. It does take a lot of a long time for some people to get into um that HPA axis dysfunction state. Whenever I used to work with people with hormones and getting them hormonally balanced, it took a long time to get um, out of that state too. It could take anywhere from three months to two years. With the protocols that I'm utilizing now, we're, we're looking at two to three weeks or so for the protocols to take into effect for people to feel well. Um, we, you mentioned who's at risk for this, right? So we talked about stress, right? There's positive stress, like having a baby, like this is like the best, right? But also the sleep deprivation from having and, a baby from, yeah, yes, yeah. and, and <laughs> yeah. um, there's things like going to graduate school, right? There are things like starting a business and, um, you know, perhaps these are positive things that can happen. And then, of course, we know there are tragic, unfortunate things like a death in the family, um, having a history of abuse or um, being in an accident, divorce, job loss. A lot of things can kind of put us over the edge. I will find that most people have something going on and I'll talk to them and I'll say, um, what was going on in your life before you got sick, right? Um, I work with people with chronic illness and autoimmunity and they'll say, usually there was a very stressful event in my life and that could be that really negative stressor, but also the positive stressors. And that's kind of how it, how it kind of, um, starts, I feel like people just have one big stressor that can overwhelm their system that they just ne don't necessarily recover from correctly. Yeah. And there's sort of a compensatory thought pattern, behavioral patterns, actions that follow that. Um, I was, as you're talking, I was reminded of a friend that I was speaking to a couple of weeks ago and she was, um, in a, in a horribly traumatic, uh, scenario, uh, she ended up surviving it. There was, you know, uh, it was a, a shooter situation in a public area and she was able to, um, you know, get out unscathed. But we were talking and she was saying to me, any time now that I go into a room, she, like she just naturally scans for like, where's the window? Where's the exit? How can I get, how can I get out of here in case something goes wrong? And it's, it's, 
uh, you know, and we've, we had, she's a good friend of mine and I've, I've known her for a long time. And it's, it's, it's interesting because that type of thinking gets ingrained, right? Like that neural groove in the brain where every time she goes somewhere new, she's like scanning. It's like friend or foe, you know, everything is a threat to her. So she has to make sure that she's able to get out, let's say safely. And I think that at least my experience as a clinician working with women in particular in perimenopause, and I'd like to, I'd like to maybe bridge the gap talking about perimenopause in a moment. But I, I find the, it's women in their 30s and 40s, maybe that have sort of accrued a cacophony of stressors, right? Maybe it's it's pregnancy and, and labor. Maybe it's a divorce, as you were mentioning, loss of a job or change of an environment where the thinking becomes so ingrained, like the neural circuitry sort of is very easily activated, that it does take some unlearning um, and safety signals, which you talk about in the book, which I which I love and we'll get to, but constantly sending the body, whether it's actively thinking I'm safe and having affirmations or, you know, or, you know, maybe it's other modalities, but when we can start to send safety signals to the body, I think that that's when we can sort of get out of this like frenetic, nervous um, state of being. So, um, okay, well, let me let me ask you this. As the thyroid pharmacist, you are very well known for your, um, your first book, um, all about thyroid, all about hypothyroid, you know, thyroid conditions in general, but, you know, more women are dealing with hypothyroid hypo, and, and Hashimoto's thyroiditis. How does adrenal dysfunction or, you know, dysregulation or derangement relate to thyroid function, if at all? Sure. And so, you know, the, the interesting thing about hormones is they all talk to one another, right? So they're not just existing in a vacuum apart from each other. And what I found in people with Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism is that most of them have some degree of adrenal dysfunction. So the other interesting thing that happens is many a times they'll be struggling with symptoms. They'll have the brain fog, they'll have the fatigue, they'll have the weight gain when they're diagnosed and they'll get put on thyroid medications. And initially they are like super excited. This is going to help. This is going to be amazing. And they get put on thyroid medications and the medications help a little bit at first, but for some women, then they actually get worse. And then they say, I feel like I have more fatigue than I did before I started the thyroid medications. And this is because thyroid medications can actually unmask some, um, some cortisol patterns when we don't have enough cortisol secreted throughout the day. And we also happen to have hypothyroidism. The body will work to prevent the breakdown of that cortisol. So it stays in longer. It's a compensatory mechanism. But when we correct the thyroid balance imbalance and we give somebody supplemental thyroid hormone, which they might need, that can unmask that, um, that cortisol imbalance because the cortisol clearance will increase. And then the person will say, okay, my thyroid numbers are looking good, but why do I still have all these symptoms? And the big part of that piece is now we have to work on your stress response. And I would say more than 90% of the people that I've worked with will have some degree of that adrenal dysfunction, that, um, cortisol pattern where they're just not tuned into our circadian rhythm. They're like tired during the day and they're wired at night. 
And so we really have to work to fully correct that. And that's what, um, that's what is a big, big part of getting a person with a thyroid condition feeling good. The, the other part of that, um, so, so I've always talked about the adrenals, right? It's always part of my thyroid protocols to help a person's, um, stabilize their adrenal function. The other part of that though, is there also people who don't have like a thyroid illness? They don't have a thyroid diagnosis, but they'll have all the thyroid symptoms and they'll have thyroid labs done. They'll even have all of the advanced labs done. And they're like, well, we don't have any evidence of a thyroid condition, but yet your metabolism is slowed down. You're having brain fog, you're having fatigue, you're gaining weight, um, so on and so forth. And then part of that is basically when we have cortisol that's out of balance, we can produce excess amounts of something known as reverse T3 that can bind our thyroid hormones thyroid hormone receptors preventing the active thyroid hormones from getting in there and activating them and so a person can become quote unquote hypothyroid without actually having a thyroid condition when their adrenal function is out of balance and then you know then you throw perimenopause on top of it all right and then right. then you just have a whole cluster of symptoms that you need to work with mm -hmm. and a whole variety of hormones that need to be addressed um should we talk about the the progesterone connection with um yes with please. perimenopause yes please yes so definitely i would say for most women if they have a thyroid issue they're going to have an adrenal issue right and so that needs to be addressed now if they're in perimenopause then we probably need to focus on their sex hormones as well so um typically you know there's um pregnenolone is the mother hormone that produces our cortisol, our DHEA, which are known as our stress hormones. And um, this can also help us with producing progesterone and estrogen. Um, and this can work really, really well for a time period when we've got our ovaries and we've got our adrenal glands making these hormones. But when things shift in perimenopause, then our adrenal glands can get, um, they need to compensate and produce more of these hormones for us. And when the adrenals are compromised, then we're going to have issues with not feeling super balanced when we're in that in that perimenopausal phase. So a lot of times people will feel like, okay, I've been feeling good for most of my life, but then perimenopause hits and I just can't sleep at night or I'm having issues with anxiety. And so many times we need to focus then on their adrenals and their sex hormones, oftentimes addressing a progesterone imbalance. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because I I speak to women all the time who will say, you know, and myself included, you know, it's I used to feel like I could handle all the things. Like you could throw anything at me and like strong like bull, like I can do it. I can like you can throw anything at me and I can I can figure it out. And I feel like personally, as well as the feedback that I get from other women that I talk to that are in their forties, that tolerance goes down. It's like, I don't have any more room for this drama. Like I don't have any more room for the teenage drama. I don't have room for the career drama. I don't have room for any of it. And maybe not drama, maybe is not the right word, but the activation, let's say, that happens from these external stressors or these external demands like raising teenagers or dealing with aging parents or dealing with maybe a change in career, a change in marital status, all the things. Um, and I, I, 
I think that the first line of defense, at least, and women don't like to hear this because they're always like, just tell me the supplement, tell me, like, tell me what's <laughs> the supplement for perimenopause is stress management, like figuring out what are some of the stress management techniques that are going to work for you. And of course, there's going to be so much bioindividuality in terms of what works for some people, what we can consistently do, what we feel best doing, et cetera. But this is, you know, one of the reasons why I'm so happy to be talking to you, because I think that we do have to, as a, as a primary defense, like one of the first dominoes that has to fall is I think sleep as you, as we've, uh, as we've touched on, but I think stress management is the thing, like our response, our internal response to the external demands of our life, I think has to change. And I think you outline beautifully in the book, you know, a couple of ways that we can, that we can navigate that. Um, thoughts on that? What, what do you, what do you, is that your clinical experience as well, where women just don't have, let's say the resilience or the fortification anymore to deal with all the things that are perceived to be coming at them all the time? Sure. And I mean, you see memes going around like you're in your 20s and you could fall asleep anywhere and you can function on two hours of sleep. And then all of a sudden you turn 40, you have coffee at like 3 p.m. instead of 2.59 and you're up all hours of night. And if you you don't eat enough enough protein, then you're not going to be able to sleep. And if you don't get your sleep, gosh forbid, you're just going to be the crankiest person in the world. Um, And part of that is, you know, our progesterone can counteract our adrenaline production. So when we have these stressors, right, that can cause us to release adrenaline. When we have enough progesterone on board, we can kind of take our internal chill pill to kind of counteract and balance that. When we have not as much progesterone available to us, which can happen as we um, get older and our sex hormone production changes, we don't have that bit of a buffer, right? And right. so we really need to work on things. We re- really need to focus on our self-care and our sleep and our stress management and making sure that we're not we're not burning the bridge at both ends, which I feel like women in their 20s, maybe even in their earlier 30s, they're able to do so. And then once you get to um, that perimenopause state, you have to, you really have to take extra time for yourself. Let's talk a little bit about what normal, so you t- at the top of our conversation, you said, you know, there's eustress and there's distress, you know, there's good stress, there's bad stress. I think it might be helpful to outline the, uh, call it uh, regular cortisol diurnal uh, pattern. And then maybe we can highlight some of the ways that the, that cortisol pattern can change with adrenal dysfunction. So maybe talking about the car and the cortisol awakening response and what a normal expectation is for cortisol over the, over the course of the day. And then some of the deviations that you've, that you've outlined in the book and what you've, what you've seen clinically in terms of uh, cortisol patterning. Sure. So when we think about a healthy person with really good cortisol patterns, they're going to be really in tune through the circadian rhythm. So in the early morning time, they're going to start building up. um, Actually, in the nighttime, they're going to start building up their cortisol levels so that we get this nice little rise in cortisol first thing in the morning. And that helps us get out of bed. We're awake. We're bright eyed and bushy tailed. As time goes on, we kind of slide down this curve till the end of the day. We're we have a little bit of cortisol, but not too much so that we can go to sleep and have restful and refreshing sleep. We're not awakened in the middle of the night and jolted, right? So this is this is what we're supposed to, the cortisol pattern is supposed to look like. We have, we have energy, 
we have a good brain function, our brain's working, everything, everything is good, right? So mood's good, energy's good, all of that's happening throughout the day. And then at nighttime, we can rest and recover really well from the day. What I've seen happen, and I work, like I said, primarily with women with chronic illness and Hashimoto's, autoimmunity, chronic fatigue syndrome, when majority of them, I, I've tested more than 90% of them will have some degree of adrenal dysfunction. Some of them will have too much cortisol that's produced. So they'll just have this like cortisol above the curve. So it's like where, an overshoot, like they're overshooting what would be normal in the morning. Exactly. So they yeah. might like wake up jolted and they might feel anxious and irritable throughout the day. They're kind of feeling rushed at all times. They're trying to squeeze in and pack as many things as they can throughout their day. Everybody around them, like their perception of other people is that like other people are slow. They're not smart. They're just like failing at everything. And they're constantly feeling um, just like stressed and like they need to do more. And anxious, irritable are some of the terms I've heard to be described. They have a hard time winding down in the evenings. They have a hard time falling asleep at night. They might have sleep that is unrefreshing. Sometimes they might present with waking up in the middle of the night um, or even early morning wakings where they're like, I know I should be sleeping more, but I'm up and I can't go back to bed, right? And then as time goes on, people will have drops at various points throughout that cortisol curve. So it's, you know, it starts off being this when it's dysfunctional. And then you might see something like this where you'll have a 3 p.m. crash and 3 p.m. comes and all of a sudden you just want to take a nap or you get really angry, you get really irritable, hangry, fatigued. And this is kind of the start of the adaptive process where your body's saying like, hey, we've been under stress for a really, really long time. We just can't have this much cortisol produced at all times. We need to do something. And that's the start of the communication breakdown between the, the brain and the adrenal glands. And as time goes on, people will end up with um, a flipped cortisol curve where they will have trouble waking up in the morning. So they'll have low cortisol here and that'll rise throughout the day. These are your night owls. So they'll say like, I wake up, I have no idea what's going on. I have no idea who I am. I have brain fog, fatigue in the morning. Then things kind of get going. I um, might crawl to the coffee machine (laughs) to make my coffee. And like, they'll be kind of okay throughout the afternoon, throughout noontime, they'll get their energy. They'll be focused then. But then as the evening comes, instead of becoming more able to rest, they'll feel wired and they'll get like that second wind of energy and they'll have trouble falling asleep at night. So this is this is another pattern that I'll see commonly. I would say this is one of the more common patterns that I see in people with, with chronic illness and autoimmunity. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving 
achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. And then the other pattern that I oftentimes see, and this is really common in like the chronic fatigue is people with flatlined adrenals where they're just not producing hardly any cortisol throughout the day. And the morning cortisol is low, the afternoon cortisol is low, and the nighttime cortisol is low. And these are the people that are like, well, everybody says like, if you're tired, sleep more. So I'm sleeping, but I'm still tired, right? So they go to sleep, maybe they sleep 10, 11 hours, but their sleep is unrefreshing. And they wake up tired and they're just kind of tired all throughout the day. And these are these are your spoonies, right? These are people that are um, chronically fatigued, chronically ill. And what did you call them? Spoonies? Spoonies, right? Do you know? I've never heard of that term. Okay. So this is kind of a term used by the chronic illness community. And it, it talks about the spoon theory that you only have so many spoons per day. And people with chronic illness, um, they may, if they may use up a spoon, for example, you know, your reserve of energy might be this big, but a person with, with that's a spoonie might have this big of a reserve of energy. And when they use too much of that energy, it takes them a really long time to recover. Is that, um, so maybe the spoonies, if you will, or where we see that flattened uh, cortisol uh, production throughout the day, would you say that that's more common in say a Hashimoto's client? Cause one of the things that I, or patient, cause one, one of the things that I, notice at least is one of the benefits of having high cortisol in the morning, of course, is that cortisol is kind of like checking all the immune cells, that central tolerance, let's say, where they're, we're looking at all the uh, immune cells. Are these autoimmune? If they are, they go to the, you know, they go to get destroyed somewhere. And if they're fine, then they're kind of, you know, the sergeant sort of lets them get out, if you will. That's a terrible analogy, but that's sort of how I, that's how I think yeah. about it in my mind. It's like, it's like, you know, roll call, right? So cortisol is high and sort of looking and, and sort of taking stock of the immune cells that we have when your cortisol levels are low in the morning, you would infer at least that those autoimmune antibodies are sneaking, like they're kind of getting through. And this is why sometimes you'll hear a Hashimoto's patient will say, gosh, like I'm puffy or my joints are hurting, or I just feel really lethargic and very achy in the morning. Is that, so my, my question here is what, when we're thinking about autoimmunity and particularly just because your expertise is in uh, thyroid health and the thyroid gland, is there a pattern that you most typically see Hashimoto's or, or Hashi's patients falling into? Is it that flat line or even that earlier stage that you described where there might be like an overshoot and then there's like that, that fabled, you know, the two to 3 PM kind of dip in, in energy? Unfortunately, what I've seen in the majority of people is that flatlined curve and that advanced adrenal curve or that um, cortisol pattern where we have the flipped curve. Now, it, it's very it's very challenging because the messaging we get out there is like cortisol, too much cortisol is bad, right? Yeah, and like people yeah. are always like talking about ways to reduce your cortisol and you should do aerobic exercise and you should do all these things to reduce cortisol. But actually for the people that I work with, like you don't want to do that. You actually want to help them produce healthy amounts of cortisol throughout the day. 
because like you said, cortisol plays such an important role in the immune system. It has anti-inflammatory benefits, right? So when from a, I'm a pharmacist, so from a pharmacological standpoint, the drugs that are oftentimes used for autoimmunity are steroid drugs, right? To manage inflammation in the body. Well, that's oftentimes because we're not producing our own levels of cortisol, which has steroid anti-inflammatory properties. And so that's what I find in people with autoimmunity and chronic health issues. Hashimoto's is, is, you know, the majority of the people that I've worked with, but I've certainly worked with other autoimmune conditions and chronic fatigue syndrome clients as well. And that's the overarching thing is that they have low cortisol throughout the day. And so some of the things that are really, really helpful for other people may in, in fact be more harmful to them, right? So things like excessive aerobic exercise can further weaken them. Things like fasting may make them feel worse, can be too much of a stressor for their body. And it's like all of these amazing hacks and health hacks that work so well for one person just can send that low cortisol person into like further decline. Going back to my my thing, like when people talk about stress, it's like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? But if you're already in that really depleted state, any kind of stressor might be too much for your body because your body can't mount that healthy stress response of releasing some of that cortisol when needed to manage our inflammation, to manage our immune system, to help us recover, to get through the stress and help us recover from it. I couldn't agree more. One of my uh, very good friends has um, debilitating rheumatoid arthritis. And of course, you know, he's really into weightlifting and really into, into the gym and the sort of, we'll say bro culture (laughs) with working out in the gym is like as hard as you can and all the time. Right. And for someone with RA, you know, or any arthritide really, but, you know, thinking about RA, like what's really most important for that cohort, let's say, is range of motion. Like it's not going as hard as you can on the squat. It's actually being able to squat with your body weight because it's going to take you that much longer to warm up. And, you know, with Hashis, with women where, you know, I've designed, let's say, weight uh, weight training protocols for them. We need to not go crazy. Like, you know, you'll hear me often say like, you want to be lifting as heavy as you can, but it's, if you're not an autoimmune patient because the recovery, let's say the output, um, that an autoimmune patient maybe has to undergo versus someone who doesn't have an autoimmune condition is vastly different. So with my, with my friend, with RA, for example, it's just do the compound movements and try to get full range of motion. And that's a win. It's not about how many plates you have on the, on the bar or whatever it is. Right. And I, I I think that's a really good point. Like the fasting, Sometimes keto can be uh, an aggravator. It's like one more stress, even though wildly great for reducing inflammation and all the things, but sometimes with the Hashimoto's and actually I find, you know, since we're talking about thyroid, I actually feel like, and I'm, I would love your thoughts on this. Usually with a thyroid patient, if I'm designing any type of nutrition for them, they have a very, it's usually higher protein, like somewhere around 40%. Um, of their diet is around protein. And that's sort of derived from my own clinical experience, my conversations with ketogenic experts and thyroid people and, you know, just kind of playing with it. But I often find somewhere around 30 to 40% of their total calories coming from protein seems to 
give them the sustenance that they need for turnover and repair. And, um, I find anything less than that. I, I don't find, I don't see them doing well over the long term. I don't know what your, if you have similar, uh, observations, different observations, I would love to hear what, what your, what your opinion is on that. Yeah, I think you definitely nailed it. I know people oftentimes think they're eating enough protein, but they're usually not. The recommendations are anywhere from like one gram per kilogram of ideal body weight um, for the average person, and then one gram per pound if you're like a bodybuilder, right? And most women with Hashimoto's, they're like, well, I'm not a bodybuilder, right? Like I don't need that much protein. But when we actually dive deeper into the research, and and of course, I'm not talking about people with like kidney disease because that's that's different. So they they do need to um, monitor their protein intake, right? But people with chronic illness and people who are older, right, like 40 plus, actually need more protein, right? Even if they don't have a super active lifestyle, they need that protein to utilize the amino acids to help themselves recover and build back their body. So absolutely, one of my key recommendations is to increase your protein intake when you're trying to balance your adrenals, when you're trying to shift your body from like that catabolic state where we're breaking our body apart to fuel the stress response to, hey, let's repair the body. Let's get our um, thyroid to work better. So we know that L-tyrosine is derived from, it's an amino acid, that's a precursor for thyroid hormones, and that's derived from protein. So there are so many women that I feel like they just don't know this. And this is something that's so incredibly helpful for balancing blood sugar and balancing our mood um, and helping us recover faster. Yeah, well said. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more there. And I um, I love the one uh, gram per ideal pound of body weight. And most women are like, what? I'm going to have 130 grams of protein. And it's like, you know how easy that is with a protein shake? <laughs> it's like one and a half scoops of, you know, if you have 25 grams, let's say of protein powder or, per, you know, protein in a, in a scoop, one or one and a half scoops in a, pro- you're at 37 for, you know, ish grams of protein. It's very easy to hit your macros when you're, at least I have found, you know, shake form. I love, I love, uh, recommending shakes for people. It's like, everything's already broken down. You don't have to work as hard. And, and I'm sure you found this as well. Women, uh, Hashimoto's patients already have some level of like gut dysfunction anyway. So shakes are really well tolerated by that population. Um, uh, oh, yes. You wanted to say something. Oh yeah, definitely. So with, with, the one of the ways of building energy in your body is, is giving your body available nutrients. So smoothies are one of the key things I recommend for people with Hashimoto's and adrenal issues. A lot of them tend not to be hungry in the morning. And so sometimes it's just easier to make that smoothie. And because everything's broken down and digested, pre-digested kind of, you don't utilize so much energy and resources on trying to digest that food. A lot of times people, when they're in that stress response, when they're hypothyroid, they actually are going to have low levels of stomach acid, which means that they're going to have a harder time breaking down their foods, especially their protein foods. And I think it's kind of part of this vicious cycle where they don't eat protein because it's harder for them to break it down. And even when they do eat it, they're not breaking it down as well. And so they find that they don't feel good on it, but that's maybe what they really need. And to bypass that, 
is doing a smoothie. So having a protein shake, um, have that as your breakfast. It's really easy to make. It's really easy to drink. Even if you're like running around and on the go, you can, you can put that in a container and bring it with you, right? To school drop off, to activities, to work, whatever, wherever you might be going to. What are some of the nutrients that you see most often depleted in someone with, you spend a lot of time in the book talking about this and certainly we can't go through each one, but what are sort of, let's say the top three to five, um, nutrients, vitamins, minerals that you see depleted in someone who is dealing with adrenal dysregulation? The B vitamins, vitamin C, magnesium, and electrolytes are some of the key things that I feel like most people are going to benefit from when they've had any kind of significant stressor or they've been under prolonged stress, even just as a preventative for people to just manage a healthy lifestyle and to stay in balance. We replenish these nutrients for people and they're like, I feel like a new person. Sometimes it's like they were stressed out, they were agitated, they had pain and cramps and you just, and headaches and migraines, they couldn't sleep anxiety, all, all of the things. And then we're like, let's do a magnesium supplement. And all of a sudden within, within days, they're like, oh my gosh, I feel so much better now. I, I can sleep at night. I have a good mood. Um, I am pooping again, right? Um, I'm not as anxious. And then women will take it for um, women that have had like menstrual cramps or just cramps throughout their body. They'll notice within a month, their cramps are going to be almost non-existent, even if they have had severe menstrual cramps. So this is this is like my go-to that I recommend for everybody, whether you do a supplement or do an Epsom salt bath, but just making sure that you're replenishing your magnesium because it's such an important um, such an important nutrient that helps us get through stressful times. I, um, I like to think of magnesium as better than diamonds. It's like, it's actually magnesium is a girl's best friend, not diamonds. (laughs) It's so, it's so true. Everything you're saying around cramping, uh, recovery from a weight training workout. Um, is there a minimum sort of effective dose that you like to see everybody on? Is there sort of like a minimum level or is it really more bio-individual? You sort of, you know, match it to the person based on like the severity or the duration of the, of the issue? I usually, because I work with people that tend to be constipated, I usually like to give them magnesium citrate in powder form. Um, part of healthy, part of having a healthy body is healthy elimination, right? And so if we're walking around with constipation, some of the um, toxins we end up reabsorbing and that can be contributing to inflammation, even sleep issues and the brain fog um, if we're reabsorbing something known as ammonia. So um, magnesium citrate is what I typically use for most people. And I'll give them a powder form to kind of work it to their benefit, right? And so you you utilize it and you might have a half a scoop of it to start and you might increase that to two scoops depending on how you're feeling. So if you have too much constipation, or I'm sorry, if you have um, too much diarrhea from that magnesium, you'd want to come back, cut back on that supplement, or um, if you're finding that it's not really helping, you might want to increase it. And I have kind of guidelines for most people where there's recommended ranges, right? And of course, everybody's going to be a little bit different. But one of the things that I really love recommending too is the Epsom salt baths. And this is not a supplement. This is a daily habit that can really set up a person. Um, if you do it in the evenings, you can really help yourself with 
turning off that like monkey mind, right? If you have like those racing thoughts at nighttime and you can't sleep and you're just like that wired and tired feeling, getting in that magnesium rich Epsom salt bath can help you wind down, can help you get ready for sleep. You know, with an increase in temperature kind of gets our body ready for sleep and you get out, it's a little bit colder. And that is like one of the things that is a big part of my protocol is finding these little ways of things you could work into your daily routine to support your body to thrive. I would also say pro tip for any parents, it works like a charm with the child. You know, if you're trying to get your child to bed early, you know, we put them in a nice little Epsom salt bath and warm them up and then, you know, tuck them in. It's also very, uh, very, very um, useful for as a parent trying to get their kids to get to bed early too. Uh, you mentioned electrolytes, which I wanted to talk about. I'm a big, uh, as I sip on my uh, electrolyte, um, in my electrolyte mug here, um, big fan of sodium, obviously potassium. I, f- I feel like sodium, kind of like estrogen and like cholesterol, is very misunderstood Uh from the public, by the public, let's say. And part of that, I think, is little sound bites that are put out by marketing machines around cholesterol is bad or estrogen is bad or salt is bad. Um, can we, can you explain the role of sodium, let's say in healing someone who has an adrenal, uh, some sort of adrenal dysregulation? Um, and I also want to point out, um, we haven't talked about it formally yet, but one of the symptoms of adrenal dysregulation, at least, um, that I've seen, and you've mentioned this in your book as well, is salt craving. So just, you know, and I think you put in the book, like the whole bag of chips, right? It's like you have the whole bag of Pringles or whatever it is. So talk a little bit about the importance of sodium in terms of a regulatory uh, mineral, what it, what role it plays in terms of helping to heal adrenal dysfunction. Yeah. So definitely people with adrenal dysfunction, they oftentimes they're going to be craving salty foods. And I call this, like you said, the whole bag of chips syndrome. And part of the connection there is because when we get to the advanced stages of adrenal dysfunction, our aldosterone production becomes depleted and the levels of sodium and water drop. And people become essentially dehydrated and they feel faint upon standing. So these are the people that will have like that situation where they might, um, stand up and their and their blood pressure drops and they may you know in some cases they might actually um, faint this is also known as orthostatic hypotension and to really get that into balance to get them to have a really healthy blood pressure again it's like sodium you hear sodium's bad cholesterol's bad cortisol's bad like all these things are bad but they're not you just want to make sure that they're in the right kind of balance so typically people with adrenal dysfunction advanced stages they will have low blood pressure. They'll have blood p- pressure that's like 90 over 60. And part of getting them to be more stable and having them have um, more energy and be hydrated is making sure they're getting adequate amounts of sodium. So um, that will help them with rehydration, with getting really healthy um, blood pressure levels as well. And then what are what is the range that you like to aim for? So I one of the electrolyte supplements that are you know is a sponsor of the show is called Element, and in one uh, sachet it's a thousand milligrams of sodium, and there's some potassium. I don't have one every day. I'll usually cut that in half. Um, 
what do you have? And there's no rhyme or reason for that. That's just, I find the taste is too strong. If it's one sachet, yeah. sorry, Rob. But, uh, so I, I usually cut it in half, but do you find that there's a sort of a minimum effective dose in terms of sodium uh, supplementation that you like to see? What I typically recommend for people is to tune into their cravings. And generally you're going to see if you've ever been in a period of stress and you're having dinner at somebody's house, you're like, wow, this food needs more salt, right? So mm-hmm. we're going to need a little bit more salt when um, various days and a little bit more sodium. So one of the things I recommend for people, and I love electrolyte drinks, you can make one and you can sip that throughout the day to your satisfaction. I sometimes might also recommend something known as soul, where you can take um, perhaps a tablespoon of sea salt and put that in a nice big warm glass of water, and then you'll sip on that throughout the day. Generally, I I find what I really try to teach people is to be in tune with their body and to listen to what the body's signals might be. So if you are kind of craving chips, right? If you're like, oh my gosh, I just wish I had, I had some chips right now. I could eat a whole bag. That's probably a message that you need a little bit more sodium, right? And so perhaps maybe doing a little bit more electrolytes that day and you know, by electrolytes, I think, you know, we're on the same page that we don't mean like Gatorade. Yeah. Yeah. So. Not, ga- not Gatorade. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and I'll also say too, I remember I was, um, I was, I, there was a point in time I was training really intensely. I think I was preparing for a photo shoot. So I was in a mild caloric deficit. And I just think for a couple of days, I was for whatever reason, just wasn't thinking about it. I wasn't salting my food. And then I, was standing and I thought I was having a hot flash. I was like, oh, well, here it is. Here's perimenopause. Welcome to the hot flashes. And I was telling my coach about it. And she's like, have you been salting? Just like, have you been salting your food? And I was like, oh my God, I haven't. So went back to like liberally salting and peppering, whatever, uh, just for taste pepper, not for any other reason that it just goes really well with salt. And then no more hot, like, you know, miraculously, right? No more hot flashes. So it wasn't necessarily that it was perimenopausal. It was just that I wasn't getting enough salt. And I was having the same type of like flushing, sweating, you know, I was feeling like kind of warm. Um, So it is one of the most tightly regulated, I would say, sodium uh, minerals in the body. It's how our nerves fire, right? We have calcium channels and potassium channels that sort of open up and we have this something called the action potential. Um, so very, very, very important mineral, very much misunderstood. Um, and as you said, it's like the, the cortisol and the estrogens and the, and the cholesterols and sodium, I think really do, uh, get a bad rap. So it is important, I think. And I would also say for recovery too, for muscle, uh, for muscle recovery too, we also definitely need sodium. One of the things I wanted to mention is a lot of times electrolytes are studied for athletes and they've been shown to help them with recovery. When we have people with adrenal dysfunction, everything for them feels like an athletic endeavor, right? So you're right. just like waking up in the morning. And so giving yourself electrolytes can be so incredibly healing and help you with your recovery time. And I've had so many people going through the program and they're like, well, I always was told that I needed to drink water, but I was never like, like I drank all the water, but it just never made as much of a difference to when I started adding the electrolytes. And it really does make a big difference in how we can feel. Beautiful. The last question I had uh, was around iron 
Um, I think that this is also very misunderstood, uh, particularly with, with thyroid health. I would probably extend that into adrenal health as well. Often being anemic or not having enough iron stores, let's say or your ferritin levels are off or your total iron binding capacity, let's say is not where it should be. Um, it can look like, uh, it can look like we have, uh, we can have very heavy periods, let's say. We can have all the symptoms, let's say, of dis, you know, a, dis, a thyroid that's not working properly. So can you speak a little bit uh, to the role of iron in both thyroid um, and adrenal health as well? Sure. So whenever a person is deficient in iron, and you know, this is known as anemia, they might not have enough energy, right? And so this is a classical symptom of that. It does tend to be more common in women with thyroid issues. Um, typically, I'll recommend that they test their ferritin levels. And um, if they are under 100, we generally will want to work on raising them. Typically, I'll see levels like 10 or 16, um, 22 in the women that I work with. 10. And yeah, it, it's like the ferritin is their iron storage protein. And it just means that they just don't have enough iron to work with. Mm -hmm. um, the interesting research has just been published in the last few years that mentioned the women who have hypothyroidism, who don't feel well on T4 containing medications, they oftentimes do have low ferritin levels. And so, and sometimes, you know, just addressing that ferritin level can help a person's not just fatigue, but also people will say like, I had restless leg syndrome. I had anxiety. I had trouble waking up in the morning. I, I had, you know, like I was, I couldn't sleep at all at night and then they'll get their iron levels up and then they feel really good. And I mean, hair loss is, is like another common pattern of that. And then what I don't think a lot of people realize as much is like the heavy menses, right? So heavy menses can cause low iron and low iron can cause heavy menses. So sometimes you have to address the low iron to, to prevent losing so much blood in your menstrual cycles. And going back to what we started the conversation with is sometimes it's like that progesterone when we don't have enough thyroid hormone on board, when our adrenals are out of balance, we're not going to have enough progesterone and that could lead to heavy periods. It's, it, you know, it, it's all connected and really it's people here that they have a thyroid issue or they have this hormonal issue. And I really want them to be aware of the other hormones that they may need to address too. Right. Right. Wonderfully said. So your new book, tell people about the new book and if people want to find out more about you and where they might take your program or work or interact with you, where might they find you on the interwebs online in person? Tell, tell them all the places. Sure. So my book is called The Adrenal Transformation Protocol, and it's focused on a four-week plan to take people out of survival mode into thriving mode. I have that book available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and wherever fine books are sold. So you'll be able to pick it up there. My website is thyroidpharmacist.com, and I'm on Instagram as Isabella Wentz PharmD and Facebook as Thyroid Pharmacist Dr. Isabella Wentz. Wonderful. Well, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today. And I know that there are so many, so many women that are listening in perimenopause or just fatigued and they don't know why, where it's coming from, what to do about it. I know that this conversation is going to be incredibly valuable. So thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. 
Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 